Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, on this week's New Statesman podcast, Anoush continues to be in Croatia, so I'm joined by Patrick Maguire to discuss Boris Johnson's big push on crime, Hetty O'Brien to talk about the use of political optimism, and Patrick and I get together again to discuss why it is that some politicians can win as independents and others finish a distant sixth. So we are in week however many of the government's sort of, hey, while Parliament's away, let's briefly pretend to be the master of what we survey and kind of announce a bunch of old money for new projects thing. This week, the main week, the main sort of theme is crime. I'm joined by Patrick Maguire. I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to kind of talk about government's political positioning, chances of, of, of getting through September and, and the various battles when it gets through and how we feel it's kind of doing on that metric. So, yeah, Patrick... I mean, one kind of, I guess the the other big question that has kind of been, well, I guess not exposed, reiterated again this week because of the various interventions by Hammond and Burko is that there will be a series of confrontations between the executive and the legislature in September, and that really this is ultimately a government that is desperately trying not to only be a government for three months. Or I suppose it's offering voters a vision of what it could do were it not for those, you know, good-for-nothing MPs like Spreadsheet Phil and Caroline Noakes and all the other disgruntled ex-ministers who have said they are willing to um, do whatever it takes. Well, their definition of whatever it takes probably isn't whatever it takes, but we'll see, to stop a no-deal Brexit. So, you know, as we have discussed at length on this podcast and in print, none of their domestic pledges, unless you are you know, just shoving money around where it already exists and you don't have to actually make a pledge at all, are things a minority government can make good on in a serious way unless they somehow engineer a majority? Yeah, I kind of think the the sort of no, the, the unknowable question is, does this government actually want to leave on the 31st of October or does it want to be stopped? On the one hand, you talk to loads of people privately and they are very clear that they want to. You talk to people about what they've said privately. You talk about what they say about the civil service. However, if you look at the actual scale of what they would need to do to be preparing for no deal, they just aren't there. In- Which is why, like, sort of the, the question, are they bluffing or do they really want it, almost isn't theirs to answer, if you know what I mean? Like, it's, at this point, you know, the ball is in the court. They have deliberately put the ball in the court of Hammond... And MPs like him, 
at which point you know it's up to them for them to decide whether they want to call what they see as a bluff or whether they decide it's a bluff and end up in the same situation MPs were a week before the 29th of March you know coming up with some you know procedural Rube Goldberg to not stop no deal but defer it again or waiting for the executive to take the hit for them exactly and I think um you know on the kind of so let's Let's assume for a moment that no deal doesn't happen on the 31st of October. Not because I think it's the most likely outcome. In fact, I think no deal is feels to me like the most likely outcome at the moment. But simply because I feel like you know the consequence of no deal is sufficiently politically volatile, then speculating is a little bit like us sitting here and being like, let's speculate about which species would, would replace us if a meteor hit. It's just, I just think it's sufficiently unknowable as to not be worthwhile. How do you feel the government is doing if there is if there is forced into an election early October? In terms of its messaging, it's very you know we know what uh, its electoral platform would be, which is its own sort of success. We know broadly the priorities are finish Brexit, you know more cash for your hospital and thrash them and lash them. But then the you know the 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 question that nobody has answered and the question that would ultimately bedevil any attempt to take this to the country is to what extent. One, can you keep an election focused on, along those three themes? Two, uh, the extent to which you can ever fight an election on public spending, especially on the NHS, against the Labour Party, whose strategic view on this is, well, you know, you get your checkbook out and then we'll get ours out and write a bigger number on it. And three, the extent to which going in this direction means eventually, you know, you hit a brick wall at Grimsby and behind you, you know, Cheltenham, Chelmsford and loads of other seats like it are, your hold on those seats is crumbling. Yeah, and I think this is the thing is like, we kind of, we sort of know what their sort of strategic risk is. It's in many ways essentially the kind of Nick Timothy 2.0. I think it's more defensible than Nick Timothy 1.0 because the decision taken by Theresa May was to deliberately polarise the electorate, believing that they would get the bigger half in a parliamentary majority. The electorate has been polarised, so I think this idea that you could pivot back and go, hey, I hear that Norway is great this time of year, I, I just think there's probably... I just don't think there is an electoral coalition for it anymore. Yeah, the, I mean, if it was, wouldn't Labour have done better in the Euros? Yeah, and it's inter- the, the question of what was the crossover point is a very interesting one. But, I mean, whenever it was... It was a very long time ago, and the political landscape and the two coalitions who inhabit it are not for taking that medicine, as every electoral event since 2017 has proved to, in increasing degrees, right? Yeah, and so I kind of essentially think, yeah, their problem, exactly as you say, is I think they are doing and saying all of the things I would advise someone to do if my strategic plan to stay in office was that I could win enough seats off Labour in the Midlands, Wales, and in the various small towns of England. I don't know why I've exempted the Midlands from small towns in England, but let's just keep going. In order to make up for what I am going to lose to the SNP, to the Liberal Democrats in various leafy parts of England, and to Labour in the remaining sort of Tory bits of big cities, they're doing all the things I would be doing in their shoes because I think that that is probably their most plausible path to escaping having a parliament like this one. The problem is I just still don't really buy it. I just can't make the numbers sum to... I mean, basically, so what do we think the escape velocity in terms of 
being able to resolve Brexit without some kind of collapses. Because I don't what, know. as in what what is the parliamentary cushion you need? Yeah, the, the majority I always come back to in my head is the majority Blair won in two thousand and five. Yeah, right, severely reduced from a landslide, but ultimately comfortable enough to do more or less anything you wanted. I mean, okay, right, and that was a majority. What sixty-ish, sixty odd, sixty-seven, sixty-seven, right? But even then, 67 in, in a parliament this febrile and with a par- parliamentary conservative party, this, you know, riven with divisions, it, it still isn't a massive number. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this to me is the, the undercovered, because, you know, we've covered it and several other publications have, have, have a, as well. But the undercovered story of this parliament has always been the threat that Tory MPs will not be readopted by their associations. Because I think that's the other way that a parliament can unlock different combinations if you are the Conservative Party. And what I know I don't know is we know that David Gork has been fairly comfortably, uh, you know, won his confidence vote in his own uh, association. What we don't know is, is Philip Hammond going to be readopted? Because if enough of them aren't, then potentially you do get to a situation where you can pass some, well, where you you can at least hold tight and leave without a deal. Because it's very interesting because MPs often say things in selection meetings, you know, the one that always comes always comes back come back to is when, you know, Corbyn Easters or whoever present that Blair's nineteen eighty three election address as evidence that he is, you know, shiftless and doesn't believe anything because it says, you know, I want to leave the No, it's not Corbyn Easters who do it, sorry, it's um Brexit is yeah. Blair's 1983 election address in Sedgefield talks about the uh, EEC draining jobs. It's like, no, no, that doesn't make the point you think it does. That just proves that ambitious, young parliamentary candidates will say whatever to get selected and then elected and to curry favour with their leadership, right? So regardless of whether, you know, to use the example of the new Tory candidate in Grantham and Stanford, a fellow traveller of them told me the other day, you know, that's Nick Bowles' old seat, you know, you get selected there by being hard on Brexit, which is what he wasn't, which is what engineered his deselection. Someone said, well, he's a, as much of a, as a metropolitan smoothie as Nick Bowles. But what that misses is, in your first parliament after getting selected, you know, you are going to want to the leadership line. Obviously, that hasn't happened with some 2017 intake Tory MPs. Or, and, you, you know, you have a political and personal incentive to do what the leadership wants. Yeah. And also, you know, lots of them being selected are genuine no-deal Brexiteers. Yeah, I think that is like the kind of the crucial way that the next parliament would be quite different from this one, even if it had broadly the same composition, which I, I mean, I think like is faintly plausible, right? Let's say the SNP take most of those Conservative seats back, Conservatives gain an equivalent number from Labour in uh, in Wales, they lose... Actually, you know, this is the pro- this, I guess this is where, I, where it always falls out to me, is I, I cannot in my head, make the number of seats I think the Liberal Democrats will recover to less than the number I plausibly think Labour could lose. Because really, all you need is for the Lib Dems to revert to the mean a bit, Hmm. just to get to 20, to suddenly it's just like, oh, there isn't actually very much... As you say, there isn't very much Grimsby in the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, even Grimsby is at the yeah. upper... You know, Melanie On has a majority of 2,000, right? Even Gr- like Grimsby is at the upper bounds of what a Conservative Party could do. And, you know, that Grimsby was, until 2017, a three-way marginal with the Brexit Party. So, you know, what the Brexit Party giveth, it can take it taketh away if it is still a potent electoral threat. But, yeah, it's one of those things where it's kind of like... I do sort of feel it's 
Basically, in many ways, the Conservatives' political performance uh, under Boris Johnson does feel like watching like a terrible team go away to, you know, Anfield or wherever. And it's just like, I understand why you decided to play very defensively. I don't think it's going to work. But it wouldn't. But you, it you wouldn't know. be shocking if it did, right? Yeah, really. At a macro level, it would be shocking. It would be quite impressive if it did. But it's like, well, I, I understand why it is you are doing and saying. It makes much more sense than trying to out-attack Liverpool at Anfield, right? Yeah. And on the subject of trying to out-attack, I think the the major ray of light for me, if I worked in Downing Street, would be the way that the Labour Party has decided to respond to its various challenges on its centre and left to the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, where it's just like, I just don't really buy that they need a particularly strong attack message on those parties beyond, oh, isn't it great that these people care about climate change? We also declared a climate emergency. Have you heard about this thing called First Past the Post? Mm. I just kind of think that, in another way, the kind of like, have we mentioned we don't like them? Or, you know, have we mentioned the coalition? Actually, probably just, I think it's probably just, quite grating to people who've already made the transition well because that's that's the interesting thing right when when james o'brien the lbc host and um tribune of the remainers you know tweeted something like you know that he really resented the football what he called the footballification of politics which was you know labor and the leadership's outriders in the media absolutely going for anyone who expressed as much as the mildest of liking for Joe Swinson yeah. because, you know, of what she did in the coalition, blah, 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 blah. And it's easy to say, well, you know, James O'Brien would say that, he's a Ramona, blah, blah, blah. But I do think that does speak to a, a, a particular strain of, you know, liberal, left, progressive thinking, right, which is, like you say, it's grating, it's, it's annoying, it makes the Labour Party look like bad losers, it looks, makes them look entitled. They'd probably be much better served, like you say, Probably, probably taking the sort of Clive Lewisy sort of approach, which is we've got much more in common than you think. Sure, if you live in, if you live in, I don't know, on the Isle of Wight, vote yeah. Green. Yeah. Um, but hey, in Norwich, you know, you've got to vote for me, basically. Yeah, I do think. Yeah, the the Clive Lewis approach to it just one of those things where I just kind of look and I feel like I just feel this seems obviously the right approach. Like that is the. I mean, it's not the joy of Ireland, but. If you are the party which does well out of our electoral system, that is the joy of our terrible electoral system, is that you don't have to have, like, a multi-fact... You know, you obviously, when this reverses, you end up in the Labour in Scotland problem, where you suddenly can't just go, oh, that's nice, but come on, we're the ones who can beat mm-hmm. the Tories. But up until the point where the, the wheel has spun around so far that you can't do it, just do that. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Right, I'm joined by Hetty O'Brien, our online editor. That's right, online uh, editor. I suddenly realised that I was just like our mumble editor, um, <laughs> who as well as editing pieces for the website has written about Boris Johnson's kind of co-opting and use of political optimism, which I thought was a, a fun and obviously current topic. Um, so yeah, how is Boris Johnson using optimism? I guess... To me, the most egregious example of it was not him directly, but that Sun front page with John's son that looked a bit like the Teletubby baby. And I kind of saw that and I I just felt a a bit ashamed to be British at that moment. But then I think when you listen to a lot of the rhetoric of his cabinet and also kind of, you know, all the Today programme interviews that Rhys Morgan people do, there just feels to be this like huge relabeling exercise where... Essentially, they're, they're basically relabeling a crisis as something that is actually far more optimistic than it is in reality. But also, by doing that, it's almost like in changing the kind of national mindset, they can change the, the facts. And actually, that's obviously not the case. But it's an interesting kind of weaponization of, of positive thinking. I think a lot of the time with populists, you see, I mean, although it's a kind of contested term, you see populist leaders kind of mobilizing this rhetoric of the kind of opposition or, or us against a, a different force whether it's with Johnson it's almost like he's not really doing that he's actually sort of weaponizing optimism in a way that's kind of slightly more maybe collective but also just as insidious I think. Yeah. There's quite an interesting debate, I think, about the word populism. Is it a set of policies or is it a political methodology? Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, how would you come down on that? Yeah. I actually, I, I'm really undecided because it doesn't feel like there's a, it's definitely not a set of policies. If anything, that feels like as a kind of policies are very much shifting. But I suppose it is the kind of, I mean, what, what felt really populist in a kind of classic sense, was his decision to have this Q&A over Facebook, which I think is the first time that's ever happened with a British a PM, certainly. And, and that feels like directly borrowing the kind of slightly more like Beppe, Beppe Grillo approach to politics, where you're using digital media to connect directly with the masses. Um, so I think a lot of it is in Johnson's kind of PR campaign feels quite populist and also this I mean th- I think one of the things that I, f- I find most interesting about the positive thinking thing is the way in which it has this really kind of dark undercurrent and so when you look at like positive thinking as it occurs on like Instagram pictures or whatever there's also this kind of underside which is like can- of cancel culture and kind of like haters gonna hate so let's just like ignore people who disagree with us and you kind of see that as well in like the I guess the kind of telegraph coverage of, of Johnson is that it's almost like there's just no engagement with any kind of criticality. It's very much like either you believe in it and are completely embracing of it or or we're not going to talk about you or we're going to kind of cancel you. So yeah. they briefly, there was one article where the headline literally described him as the people's Boris. Yeah. Without any, it's one of those things where it's just like, I assume that there was a level of irony behind whoever headlined it in that fashion. But the fact you can do that and it not be obviously tongue-in-cheek does mm. show the weird place that the kind of coverage of it has has got to. Yeah, completely, completely. It feels like it's a lot of it is kind of... I mean, there was that Will Davies article that we ran last week as well about this kind of rentier alliance and how... And to me, that really spoke to... I mean, the, the article was arguing... Um, he was arguing that the kind of people who are voting, particularly the kind of Boris Johnson voters, are distinctly much more kind of white, male and wealthy than the rest of the electorate. But also 
that that they aren't invested in the kind of concrete economy of say like car manufacturing or like salaried industry they're much more kind of tied up with the footloose international capital because they've made their money off you know offshore funds or, or pension funds or whatever and so it's a sense of like well these people can afford to be optimistic you know the head of Weatherspoons can afford to be optimistic because no deal Brexit will literally mean that he can probably have kind of cheaper American imports or whatever of food for his pubs it's kind of this sense of like who can afford to be optimistic and, and who can't and I think I, I think a lot of people that it's not optimistic at all Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Right, now seeing as Anoush is away and this is a joyously obscure and intricate question, I thought I would take advantage of the fact that a man who has literally read Robert Kilroy Silk's autobiography... It's, um, not, it's, not, a, it's not an autobiography, it's, it's a memoir. It's a, it's a political diary of a year fighting the trots. Right, okay. Sorry. I've also I've read his novel, though. <laughs> Sorry, right. well, I could speak about this all, all, all day. I thought we would take this question from Robin Wilde. As you may or may not be aware, Frank Field has, well, I was about to say, had already quit the Labour Party, but has announced he will run as a Birkenhead social justice candidate. Mostly, of course, independent candidates fare incredibly badly when they are cleaved off of their party brand, with a handful of interesting exceptions, which Robin Wilde has asked us to kind of get into the, you know, so what is the difference between Simon Danshuk, which is the kind of typical performance, Rochdale, lost deposit, you know, crushing fifth or whatever place it was, and your various near misses, Dave Nellist almost winning Coventry South East in 92, Jim Sillers almost winning Ayrshire South in 79, Dick Tavern's various flirtations with Lincoln... And of course, yeah, various things like, you know, Blanna Gwent in 2006. Why does that happen? Okay, let's draw, let's draw the most, uh, to use your first example, Simon Danchuk. You know, despite his long-standing hatred of the Labour leadership, never bit the bullet and called a by-election. The reason he did so appallingly badly, first and foremost, and scored and polled less than a thousand votes, wasn't just because he was Simon Danchuk. It's because Simon Danchuk versus a Labour candidate versus a Tory candidate, YN, at a general election, is an entirely different beast to Simon Danchuk, YN, in the Simon Danchuk, do you think Jeremy Corbyn is a wrong and by-election? This has no impact on who your Prime Minister is going to be. This is just about Rochdale, sort of. That that question is a much much different one to the question voters fighting, uh, making decisions on, you know, as much as all the Corbyn sceptics in the PLP like to say... It's all about their personal vote, right? You yeah, know. it's just not true. It's just no. not, it, and I think the other thing about kind of personal votes that people always forget, right, is even Simon Danchuk, whose popularity had severely waned for a variety of reasons by the time he ran, you know, as opposed to 2015, where, you know, I that's one of the seats I visited in that election. And there were people, who, you know, there were a lot of people who, because of his campaign against Cyril Smith and the stuff he wrote that was bluntly unhelpful to Ed Miliband in the Mail and the Telegraph, who liked him, who, who would not have voted Labour but did vote for him. Even in his sort of like, you know, kind of shriveled 2017 incarnation, he still got 600 people. One in 100 people in that constituency sat down and they thought, well, you know what, I like him enough that I am going to forego my right to choose the next prime minister. Right. And th- th- I think this is the kind of thing people always forget about personal votes is that 70,000 is a lot of people. If you get 10%, if you get 7,000 people to vote for you, just you, 
That's hugely impressive. However, unless that's attached to a party mm-hmm. brand... For Field, I think a really illuminating example is the example of Bob Spink, who was the Tory MP for Castle Point, who briefly became UKIP's first MP yeah. in 2008-2009, and then the, the Commons wouldn't let him be UKIP's first MP because they, they didn't have a whip. But anyway, he, in the 2010 general election, polled something like 12,000 votes, yeah. which I think is, you know, we can look at Field and think, you know, long history in the constituency. You know, I think that's... Uh, that's the fake feel might have. Yeah, that feels about right to me. I think like, so. Let's let's talk about some of the other sort of successful examples because what Dick Tavern did was essentially what you took the point you about Simon. He went, "I've been deselected. I'm going to make this a, a contest. I'm going to hold a by-election. It's easier to win a by-election where you partly because elections are always a contest over what the question mm-hmm. is, right?" Boris Johnson will want the next election to be like who's the hardest, baddest, most able to, you know, to do Brexit hang them, flog them, lock them up, and spend more on the NHS. And Jeremy Corbyn want the next election to be like, how do you feel about Brexit? Can't we all unify around the idea the public realm is falling apart? And, ov- right? and obviously, by-elections yeah. and independent candidates offer you know, parties who don't stand a chance of winning in those constituencies, uh, e.g. the Tories in Birkenhead, yeah. the opportunity to make hay in the way that you know Tory wets like Patrick Mayhew and... Heseltine, although he never went to Lincoln, they all supported Dick Tavern because it was an opportunity to give the Labour Party a bloody nose, right? Yeah, exactly. And then once you've won in your own right, as Dick Tavern had, he had an idea of where his voters were, which made it easier to find them afterwards. And, and to maybe undercut a point you're about to make, Dick Tavern brought a load of councillors with him to form the Lincoln Democratic Labour Party, who then formed the majority on the council. So you, he had a huge he brought a huge infrastructure with him yeah i mean i think this is the other and this is the other thing and with field it's such safe labor territory than the fact that like loads of the things that usually point to success broadly do quite well for him i just don't think matters all right but um he has brought some councillors with him mm. and councillors are literally the most important bit of political infrastructure in british politics it's it's not the only reason why in that kind of like who is the party of the pro-European centre, Lib Dems and change, then the Liberal Democrats utterly whomped change, first in the air war, then in the then in the locals, in which obviously change could not and did not stand. And then of course finally in what really destroyed change as a, a meaningful entity. I mean, I know when we nominally have to pay lip service to the fact that there's a party called Change which still has MPs in Parliament, but I mean like in the safe space of this podcast, we can admit that that is a fiction, is because they had hundreds upon hundreds of councillors and, of course, thousands and thousands of members. But kind of the, in terms of, like, yeah, the the crucial campaigning infrastructure, the infrastructure of people who can do things for their voters in the day-to-day, who can raise things, who have a sense of their patch, right? Councillors are just so important. It's why MPs in marginal seats and the government holds tend to get increasingly nervous whenever they kind of look around and they go, well, when I was the parliamentary candidate in, to pick a real-world example, Hastings, right, where essentially Labour in office did what opposite governments tend to do, which is just shed and shed, shed councillors. And then eventually, oh, boom, I'm Amber Rudd, I'm the MP for Hastings and right. Now, if you're Amber Rudd, you've come dangerously close losing your own seat and when you kind of do the ring around of oh i'll go knock you on doors with some councillors the number of conservative councillors in your own patch is also quite thin and that is one of the things which you know if an mp in a marginal seat just becomes incredibly 
nervous about. And it is why I think actually the independent who I and I mentioned, you know, you think who I think is most likely to to gain a seat without a party brand at the next election is Claire Wright. In is it East uh, Devon? Y- uh, yes, it's East Devon. Hugo Swire's seat. She's a popular county councillor. If you look at her. In the past three electoral cycles, her vote's going up and up and up to the, ex- to the extent now it's quite a marginal. It, you know, the majority is only a few thousand. She's the closest challenger to, to Hugo Swire. But yeah, she is sort of the, that theory about councillors, right, made made flesh. Like you have to you have to know your area, you have to know where the voters are. And also you have the electoral headwinds have to be moving in your favour. Where I think you either need that, so you either need a, a long record of, of service, or you need one sort of major you need one sort of major course of labor right so for george galloway the iraq uh, war. it was the iraq war for peter law in planar gwent it was the imposition of an all woman shortlist for richard taylor in wire forest it was the closure of kidderminster hospital and you know for tavern it was his own deselection and the labor party shift to the left what i feel field lacks you know beyond the economy doesn't work for people in birkenhead and you know this, you know, working class people here need a better deal. Okay, I suppose you can put that on a a bumper sticker. That's literally the Labour Party's entire political project, right? But it's not sort of, hey, I'm Frank Field and things are terrible. Vote for me. It's like, well, here's a guy called Mick Whitley and he's the new Labour candidate, and you just want to vote Labour. How? Do, I don't really. I do also just basically think that yeah, then the kind of there's all of the kind of infrastructure and political circumstance stuff that we've talked about, but then there's also the kind of crucial like, are you in faintly favourable terrain? And like Birkenhead is so safe anyway that it really is this kind of like okay, you've taken councillors with you, you have a national profile, you have a local profile, but you're still a candidate in Birkenhead yeah. so that dog's not going to hunt and also you can't like even like I, 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 before we did this podcast I, I looked through the electoral history of Birkenhead mm. and it's a bit like you have to go back to 79 before the Tories are scoring above 30% to say nothing of the fact they scored 5,000 in 2017 so you can't even do that sort of well on a really optimistic reading the Tories will stand down and you know most of it, their votes will go to Frank Field and say he you know keeps 10k Labour votes like no the numbers just the numbers just don't work yeah it's just one of those things where it's just it is just quite hard to come up with a plausible thing and this actually I mean and this is a kind of you know please for mercy for our many academic listeners who listen the thing I am continually fascinated by is why have independent councillors continue to do so well in Wales because as well as the kind of you know I mean wow great day for the Blanagwen tourism board how to win there <laughs> we dislike women Wales has always been more inclined to elect independent councillors, mm. and I suspect that for whatever reason that is, and I have been unable to find much research as to why this is probably also helped in Blanagwent in 2006. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Patrick Maguire, our online editor, Hetty O'Brien. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, tell a friend. If you're not enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please don't leave a review. Although actually, you know, useful, polite feedback is always gratefully received. And if you have a question for You Ask Us, whether it's uh, broad and detailed or incredibly obscure, get in touch.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.